your political opponent may not be as concerned with your annihilation as you might think. From SDPB, today is Monday, February 5th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Shankar Vedantam is host of the NPR podcast, Hidden Brain. He joins us to preview a new series about how we form our political beliefs. We'll talk with leaders of the South Dakota Black Chamber of Commerce about their new venture. A positive jobs report and lowering inflation rates offer optimism for the U.S. economy. So what's happening with the central bank's balance sheet? Joe Santos helps us understand the runoff. Plus, the animal kingdom gets ready for Valentine's Day in some unexpected ways. We'll talk about that later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, black South Dakotans interested in starting or running a business have a new support system in their corner. The South Dakota Black Chamber of Commerce launched last Thursday, and we are going to meet today two of the community and business leaders in the chamber. Sydney Bazemore is Director of Communications at the South Dakota Black Chamber of Commerce and the National Black Chamber of Commerce Liaison. And our friend Terry Liggins is a frequent guest on this show, and he is the Programs and Services Director at the SDBCC, and they have both gathered here in the Kirby Family Studio. Sydney, it's nice to meet you. Welcome. Thank you, Lori. Pleasure to be here. And Terry, welcome back. Oh, I'm so excited to be back as usual. So this is an exciting time when you're launching a new venture, but people, um, Sydney, don't see how much went into before the launch of the new venture. So how long has this been a, a plan with the national organization and figuring out how to bring it into a, a South Dakota community? It, it has been certainly a nice lead up to last week. We started around May or June. Our founding president and our founding vice president, Lynn Patterson George and Emmanuel Bassey, started concocting this idea to serve African American businesses in the state of South Dakota. And uh, lo and behold, come I think around what November mm -hmm. is when they started to get other principals involved, such as Terry and myself. I had just returned to the community of South Dakota from being uh, out for seven years, and immediately upon getting here, they're like, hey, we have something going on. This is right up your alley, and it's been exciting. It's been really exciting to get things going and get moving in the right direction. How do the connections between the national organization work? So, ironically, upon my involvement, initially we have two parent or big brother, big sister organizations, the United States Black Chamber of Commerce and the National Black Chamber of Commerce. Our, our initial affiliation was going to be with the United States Black Chamber of Commerce, which is a part of the National Black Chamber of Commerce. The National Black Chamber of Commerce is the largest African-American organization in the world. And initially, we were going to kind of wait until we got involved and affiliated with them. However, via my connections and um, a mentor that I have, he knows the president yeah. of the chamber and said, you guys are up to a chamber in South Dakota. This is meant. Let me connect you with them. And it sort of started to accelerate our connectivity with the National Black Chamber. Were there certain, um, you know, uh, measures that you had to meet, benchmarks that you have to say, you want this to be successful. How are you measuring that as far as growth and connectivity and membership. Tell me a little bit about some of those goals. Sure. Yeah. Well, in terms of our affiliation with the national organizations, they really serve as a support 
for us to really, you know, roll out our programs and services that that Terry Hill will be at the helm of the ship for in that regard. But in terms of uh, our criteria and things that we need to meet in order to be affiliated with those national um, organizations, there's not too much other than the fact that we need to be registered. We need to be registered as a chamber, and then we have to have uh, an accordance with really helping entrepreneurial and economical empowerment and programs that are slated to really help those communities. And that, aside from that, is the autonomy to how we operate is with us. They just kind of serve as an advisory, you know, kind of piece to help us push the initiative forward. Terry, it seems like on this show we're talking all the time about economic growth, Mm -hmm. workforce, supply chain, uh, challenges and obstacles to small business owners. This is a space that you've been in um, as a leader for quite some time. Tell me a little bit about your hopes for this new organization, this new network, and new connectivity? What makes it really exciting is we're building upon momentum of other great organizations that have started this conversation. Now, I've worked directly with Pathways to Inclusive and Equitable Workplaces. I've supported the Hub South Dakota and a big fan of what um, Vicki does at the Employment Resource Network and advocating for people with special needs in that way. And I just think really what we get to do now at the SDBCC is build upon that, continue the conversation about equity and inclusion and belonging, and really get into the margins of our community and start to resource people that have been under-resourced and not necessarily forgotten about. It's just under-resourced. So now that we are going to really shape programs for black business owners and entrepreneurs, it's going to really help us fill that opportunity gap that is there that comes with so many other issues and problems that we see in our community. So this is definitely not only a workforce solution, but it's public safety. It's, it's the things that keeps me all fired up to, to, to show up and do work. <laughs> and you bring a lot into that space. Yeah. So, you know, tell me if you're talking to somebody and, you know, maybe they're a young high school student and yeah. they're like, I would love to be in business, but I, I don't have anybody in my life that, uh, you know, that I can look up to or mentor me mm-hmm. because uh, nobody in my family has ever done anything like run their own business. Yep. What would be some of the, the places that you would advise them to start with? Yeah. Um, beyond just like reaching out to other people who are wanting to do the same thing that you're doing. So right. Start that, there. Perfect, Lori. And that's exactly why we exist. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's what the South Dakota Black Chamber of Commerce is going to be able to do. I mean, you can liken it to an, an organization like Startup Sioux Falls, who is here as well to help people with business mindset and ventures to get started. But again, it doesn't reach everybody. Not everybody's comfortable with maybe walking through the door of a mainstream resource. You have to have a resource that's in the community of the people you're trying to reach. And so with us, not only focusing on, you know, black and brown communities and, you know, urban and inner cities and such, and this tr- traditional mainstream option is not going to reach the margin. So the South Dakota Black Chamber of Commerce is going to be exactly that, a place where someone who is 18 to 30 years old who is a first-generation business owner, can look up the program and services that we're going to be offering and then come into a safe place where they will be reflected to then really begin to start to build that entrepreneurial mindset. So we will provide that mentorship for them. Yeah. Sydney, when you invite people into the, into the space of imagining what kind of business they would like to run, you get new ideas, new ideas that South Dakotans haven't seen before because there's new voices in the room. Yeah. What are some of those voices that you've been hearing that make you excited about um, the way that this Chamber of Commerce can elevate the work being done but also bring new stuff 
to South Dakota in in business and economic development. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's one of the cornerstones to our outreach is is really looking to one to uplift those in the the artistic space because typically when it comes to their business mindset, you know, for me with a background in music, it was the music business. Sure. For the artists, they just are focused on the art. So providing a resource for them to kind of up the ante on their business scalability um, is something that we're going to look to do. But then also with these affiliations that we have with the NBCC and the USBCC, we're really bringing in and pulling in different sectors and different opportunities by which this can certainly be the hub for entrepreneurship um, in terms of black businesses accessing having a firm representation at the uh, at the table with other businesses to kind of try to cross collateralize collateralize and collaborate on different ideas but we're certainly looking to be a catalyst for for businesses and entrepreneurs and creators to feel safe in order to bring those new ideas because i know just as well as many other people the mentality sometimes of or the culture sometimes has been a little slower to adapt new things so with this type of a platform, uh, we'll be able to really say, hey, this is a safe space for you to kind of spread your wings, think outside of the box, and bring something that's, that's, that's useful to the South Dakota community. I think the music business is a great example because I watched the Grammys last night, mm -hmm. and Jay-Z gave this powerful speech he when sure getting did. the Dr. Dre Award about showing up mm -hmm. and telling people show up even when they don't recognize what you're yep. doing, yep. show up even though they haven't gotten it right Absolutely. yet, show up until they say, yep, you're a genius, mm -hmm. yep, you're, and that's the business of music that someone like Jay-Z came into mm -hmm. that didn't exist and he created something he created. entirely new. I was inspired by that. Did yeah. you, do you think that words like just showing up can be powerful tonic? One of the biggest mantras that I've always lived by, and I learned this uh, playing football, is showing up is 80% of the battle. Mm. 80% of the battle. Most people are reluctant to or have past, you know, encounters or failures or adversities or hurdles that will keep them from showing up again. So really this is the SDBCC is going to be a place where we're we're really eliciting and, and promoting and, and, and evoking the spirit of persistence, perseverance, you know, resilience, because the entrepreneurial journey mm. is one that is very intrinsic. We mm. think that it's about servicing these communities and bringing a product to market and all of these things. Yeah. This is a personal development journey, mm -hmm. and we're excited to be a part of that visionary leadership, bringing things such as advocacy, financial access uh, to these communities to help them with their confidence in their entrepreneurial journey. It's easier to show up, Terry, when there are other people showing up with you and for you. That's right. That's right. And then we're, and we're looking to inspire people. And we saw that at our ribbon cutting. We had so many people show up for us at the ribbon cutting. We were top story in Dakota News now. The National Chamber President is all fired up. We're meeting today as a team to do strategic planning. And there's so many people knocking on the doors ready to get involved with us. And I love that you mentioned JG, a person who inspires me and many others. And I'm sure you and I and Sydney weren't the only ones watching the Grammys last night. And we've got a lot going for us right now, and we're so excited to open the doors. All right. How do people connect, Sydney? Where should they go to find more information? www.sdbcc.org.
All right. We'll put some links up on our website, too, if you follow us frequently. My guests have been Sydney Baysmore and Terry Liggins, both today representing the Black Chamber of Commerce of South Dakota. Brand new organization. We will talk to you again. Bring some of those business owners and entrepreneurs for a roundtable. We'll mm -hmm. talk about those challenges that are facing people uh, across the state today and in the future. So thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, everyone seems to be talking about the economy, and it's not just because it's an election year. The Federal Reserve keeps a keen eye to fighting inflation. Those efforts appear to be working, although the target of around 2% remains somewhat elusive. Then there was the jobs report and the news that the U.S. once again significantly exceeded expectations for a robust labor market. Before you run off with this information, let's dive into another bit of news that this one is one that you might have missed. We're going to talk about the balance sheet of the central bank, how it is changing and why that matters. As always, Joe Santos is our guide. He is here for today's Monday Macro. Joe is director and professor of economics in the Ness School of Management and Economics at South Dakota State University, where he leads the Dyke House Program in Money, Banking and Regulation. You can find his companion blog to all of our conversations, including this one, online at schooled.blog.com. And he's joining us today from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio on the campus of SDSU in Brookings. Joe, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Laurie. Big news in the economy. So for context, inflation and the jobs report, things that we're always watching and kind of think we understand what's, what's new in those two areas? Sure. Um, so the inflation data are looking better. Uh, so what's new is that according to the central bank's preferred measure of inflation, um, they're getting a year-over-year -year percentage change in the price level of about 2.9%. And that's interesting because 29 is not 3. <laughs> so now we're, we're sort of in the range uh, of numbers that begin with 2. And of course, as you said, their target is 2% period. Um, so that was good news. Um, on Wednesday, the Federal Open Market Committee uh, ended its meeting and uh, Jerome Powell stepped out and uh, announced that the committee's decision was to keep their target uh, interest rate and interbank rate, we affectionately call the federal funds rate, to keep it uh, within a range of about five and a quarter to five and a half percent. And that's where it's been. Uh, there was some speculation. Maybe they would come out of that meeting a bit more dovish. Maybe they would lower it and all. Uh, but but that's not what they did. They, they kept it as is. And then on Friday, as you said, uh, the U.S. economy produced a lot of jobs. They weren't all full-time jobs, and there might be a little bit less there than first meets the eye. But nevertheless, there's weird stuff in every month, and this month's weird stuff still allowed the month to produce 353,000 jobs. So um, the, the thinking by the end of the week, I think, was the central bank is planning to be accommodative, that is to say planning to accommodate growth and employment by lowering interest rates, but just not yet. So it was sort of not a dovish tone, but maybe you could see a dovish tone from where they were last week. But then as you suggested in your intro, there was also a little more. Uh, I actually caught this live. I was sitting there in the office having Jay Powell speaking behind me, uh, overhearing his talk at the press conference. 
And he just sort of blurted out, oh, and we'll continue the roll-off or, or the runoff um, and then <laughs> moved on to the next, next sentence. And I thought, huh, that is actually decidedly not dovish, but it's sort of operationally technical. But it's interesting that he decided to say that again, to say uh, we're going to continue to shrink the central bank's balance sheet. So I thought that might be an interesting one to talk about because – you know, everybody heard inflation, everybody heard Fed funds rate, everybody right. heard employment. I'm not sure everyone heard runoff. Runoff, yes. So tell us what the balance sheet is. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve is, is weird, um, but it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's more weird in some ways than others. So the yeah. weirdest thing is that the Federal Reserve, as I like to say, books, that is, uh, puts in an account a Federal Reserve note, think a $5 bill, $10 bill, as a liability. They're the only institution in the galaxy that would do that. Everybody else, if they had their hands on a $5 bill, would think, I own OWN this. I don't owe OWE this. Um, and so this is mine. It's an asset. So that's the weird part. They, they book what we think of as money as a liability because they issue what we think of as money. Mm -hmm. But the other part of the ledger, it makes perfect sense. They own OWN stuff. And some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff they own um, are government securities and securities that back mortgages, so-called mortgage-backed securities. And that, in principle, is not weird. Um, real briefly, if you want to put new money into the economy, uh, you sell people. Um, you, you buy stuff. And so you could buy government securities or you can buy mortgages uh, that are bundled in securities. And if you just think of the transaction, they get the securities, the Fed does, and then they hand off this money that has never seen the light of day. They, they create more IOUs from that perspective. So that's really simple and magical. But if you do this in really large doses, because maybe something is fundamentally not right with the credit markets, I don't know, a financial crisis, a pandemic, <laughs> you can find yourself dipping into those securities markets for reasons that really don't have to do with monetary policy. They're more dysfunctions. Um, we say markets are not making, like there's a moment where there's a seller, but there's no buyer. You don't want that sort of dysfunction in a treasury market or in a mortgage-backed security market. So over the years, the Fed's been going in and say, all right, we'll be the counterparty to any trade of last resort. Well, now they have trillions of <laughs> dollars of government securities and mortgage-backed securities. And now that the fever has sort of gone down, they have introduced or introduced in January 2022 the runoff. And that was to say... We're not going to buy any more of this stuff. There's no sign of dysfunction, or we call them segmented markets. Things seem to be working. Um, but we are aware that a central bank should not have an $8 trillion balance sheet, um, roughly you know, 28% of GDP. That's really weird. We're going to allow these securities to, as it were, run off. And mechanically, the way that works is really passive and maybe a little interesting. I want to and jump that in is, before we get to how yeah. this works, because I want to put in perspective this 28% of the GDP. That's mm -hmm. high compared to what? Yeah. So so when I was in grad school and studying monetary policy and stuff, I mean, I was inter interested in the monetary base when it was not cool. Um, <laughs> and it was not cool because it was always a number. The Fed's balance sheet was like $900 billion or something. Yeah. Um, and that was about 6% of the size of the economy. Again, like we always do, we're just scaling it to very right. different concepts, the balance sheet and the size of the economy, but you scale one to the other. And it was six-ish percent. The Fed held securities and just the ordinary business of life 
because if they wanted to get interest rates to go up or down, they'd want to put money into the economy and you don't have a helicopter, you have a buying and selling of bonds process. So they'd buy them and they'd accumulate them, but nothing like now. So that was like 6% of GDP. And, and now we are in excess of 28. 28%. And so I, what happened is not just, it's not as easy to say like, oh, government grew or politics got involved. There were these crises. If this hadn't grown in the way, like if they did not take the steps, the unusual measures mm -hmm. to deal with unusual things like the pandemic, and like the financial crisis of 2008, am I wrong to say that there would have been a whole lot of human suffering? Yeah. Like these things yeah, were it, for it, a reason, but there are consequences for them. Does that work? Yep. Yeah. And, and to make your point even stronger, it's such a good question. In some ways, we can control for the political forces and sort of, the, as it were, moral suasion yeah. simply because nobody knows what the heck any of this is about. right? So <laughs> you would never say, vote for me. I'm going to operationally change you know, the composition of assets on the Fed's balance sheet. I mean, people's yeah. eyes would glaze over. So the fact that this is so technical, so abstruse, so hidden from the public gaze, I think reinforces your point that, no, you're not ever doing this for political reasons, because, you know, if you're explaining you're losing, you'd have to explain an awful lot to yeah. make political uh, sort of money out of this. Um, no, it's completely operational. And as you say, it clearly indicates structural dysfunctions in those markets um, that the central bank rightly, I would argue, wanted to sort of put aside and say, look, if, if we're going to have a deal that can't be made, a so-called fail, we are going to step in and sort of save the day. Yeah. Um, and, and so now they've got all these things. And we've on saved the a lot sheet. of days. <laughs> we've saved a lot of days. Right. I mean, another another yeah. percentage or ratio you can think of is, you know, these are Treasury notes, bills, bonds, the securities, government securities. There are only about 30 trillion of those out there. And the Fed owns like six trillion of them. So they have a lot of Treasury securities on their books. So the runoff is the process yeah. by which you let this number go down. And the way it works is really elegant when principal is paid back to the Fed, not because they're the Fed, but because they're the ones that have the security at that moment that the security is paid back. When the security is paid back to the lender, the Fed, um, that's it. It's sort of like a, an abyss. The money that is going from some bank account somewhere inside the economy to the Fed just removes that money from the economy. And so because the Fed doesn't It'd be an IOME to the Fed, right? It's right. its own money. So, so that's it. So very passive. We're just going to let this happen and it continue to let yes. it happen. And that will. But does that do they have to put their feet on the accelerator more and make it happen more quickly? Does it, do they control the pace of that allowing at all? Yeah. So they set this up in January 22. It's a very good question. And it said, here's how we're going to do it. And they had a number, an amount that they would just allow to passively run off the balance sheet for Treasury securities, an amount for mortgage-backed securities. Um, and then those numbers would change over time. So where we are right now is they are allowing $60 trillion, uh, forgive me, billion, $60 billion of Treasury securities to, as it were, run off the balance sheet every month. Um, and then 35 of mortgage-backed securities. So just to put this in some temporal perspective, I did this real quick before we went on. If you take all the Treasury securities they own and allow them to passively run off $60 billion a month, uh, you're going to be doing this for about nine years. 
right? That's how long it'll take to burn off all the Treasury securities. Um, that's not their goal. They state that their goal is that they'll continue doing this um, until they reason that the credit markets and reserve markets are where they want those markets to be. It's kind of ambiguous, so nobody knows exactly when this stops. Okay, so he kind of throws this off as a nothing-to-see-here moment. Is there anybody who would care, like investors or people who are trying to, to – is there any way to capitalize on this or any benefit of, like, knowing that their runoff is going according to plan, or is it really just, uh, you know, procedural? Yeah, really good question. Um, the bond market cares a lot because um, the bond market, after all, is made up to a large extent of the very bonds the central bank is either deciding to buy, think another demander, mm -hmm. so that raises the price of bonds. So if you're a bond owner, potential buyer, whatever, you're thinking, wow, I wouldn't mind this very large central bank coming into this market and competing price up. Um, likewise, if, if the, that very large potential competitor says, we have now initiated a runoff and we are never going to buy these things or at least try to diminish our holdings of them, um, that means those securities then just go everywhere else to be purchased and that weakens the price. So if, uh, you know, very direct effect, if Jay Powell had said, he said he's going to continue the runoff, let's just say for argument's sake, and he did not say this, I'm going to accelerate the runoff. Yeah. Uh, that would be a very good day for bond prices uh, because you'd be saying we're getting rid of this stuff. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to get rid of these things in, at a rate we, we normally would not. Um, likewise, if you say we started buying them, that would change bond prices. So it does have a direct effect in credit markets. And actually, uh, on Wednesday, when he made the comment about interest rates and how it'd be maybe a little higher until they have more data and then blurted out the runoff, mm -hmm. um, all of that tended uh, to, to have a, a fairly dramatic effect um, on, on bond markets. Yields went up and prices went down, kind of the, yeah. the sort of thing you would expect. You weren't the only person who heard that. <laughs> that we're the only person who heard it. Um, and, and realized the significance of it. Um, yeah. And, and again, because it is an ambiguous stop point, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're going to do this until they determine they say reserve balances are you know, consistent with ample reserves. It's very yeah. ambiguous. So because of that, even though they say, yeah, we're doing it every month, nothing to see here. Well, the ambiguity means at some point they may come to the conclusion they needn't go any farther. Right. And that's right. I think the wonks are always wondering again, expecting not to hear it on any given at any given meeting, but always wondering, hmm, I wonder when they stop the runoff. But largely, I mean, the takeaway also is that the, the Fed is being less dovish than many right. people heard. I, I, There's something else going on here than other than the, the, the big headlines. That's it's right. Nuanced. There's kind of it's in, really nuanced. It's and, nuanced, yeah. but yeah. that's right. In the background, there's a kind of autopilot hawkishness that's playing out uh, in that they're allowing the bonds to run off um, and in that way, essentially taking themselves out of that bond market. So again, prices could go down, yields would go up. That's a hawkish outcome that you're referring to. So yeah, it's sort of a, a low-grade sort of background noise, if you will, this runoff is where they're just keeping this, this machine going and allowing their portfolio to shrink over time. Um, 
which all else equal, yeah, if you were to attach a, a bird metaphor to it, it'd be hawkish. It wouldn't be <laughs> dovish. That's right. That's right. I love how we're just always trying to like, you know, what is the bumper sticker takeaway <laughs> from this moment? <laughs> and there is there is none. But uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the yeah, take- I, I think they were a little more hawk than maybe they were. Maybe um, interpreted to be by, say, Friday afternoon. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to learn this and understand it more so you can get behind the bumper sticker or beyond the bumper sticker response or beyond the soundbite, that is why we do Monday Macro with Joe Santos. And you can find his uh, blog with all the charts and graphs that help you visualize and understand this. And some of them are really quite compelling. So schooled.blog.com. Well, all of them are compelling, Joe. But some of them are like... (laughs) Little stair steps. I'm like, huh, it's an actual stair step. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, School.blog.com. We always put those up on our website and uh, link to that so you can find it easy as well. Joe Santos, thanks so much as always. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. America may not be as divided as we think we are. NPR's podcast, Hidden Brain, launches a new series where host Shankar Vedantam explores how we form our political beliefs. For example, why do we tend to think our political opponents are, in fact, our mortal enemies? Now, the series is called Us 2.0, and we caught up with Shankar Vedantam last week for a preview. Shankar, welcome back to South Dakota. (laughs) Thank you, Laurie. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a while since we sat down together, but you have been here before. You want to let listeners uh, have a quick reminder of of your time in the state before. Yeah, I remember very warmly my visit, although maybe warmly is not exactly the right word to use here. (laughs) It, it It was cold when I came. And I suspect it's cold. It's cold right now, but it's it's wonderful to be back, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's start with this uh, new us 2.0. You set out with this essential question about whether we, being Americans, are as divided as we think we are. Um, tell me a little bit about the project. Well, I think anyone who looks out at the political landscape right now um, and has a psychological bent of mind would say that America needs some psychotherapy. Uh, you know, as a large family, you know, in many ways, our conversations with one another have become dysfunctional. Uh, large numbers of us uh, distrust uh, other groups. We come to believe our opponents are not just uh, wrong on the policies, but but uh, evil and hateful people and people who hate us. And in some ways, none of this uh, is, uh, is a good sign for the future of our country. And so, we at Hidden Brain thought we would look at the psychology and the social science of political polarization and also what we can do to help people talk across differences. All right. We feel that we are under attack and the attacker is our neighbor, our mm-hmm. the person next to us at the voting um, booth. <laughs> One of the things that strikes me about the first episode and the, the episodes as they're laid out to come is yeah. how afraid we are and how vulnerable we actually feel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think many of us look at our political opponents and we say our opponents are out to get us. You know, if we let them have their way, they would not just get their way on policy, but they would destroy us. They would destroy our country. They want to basically eliminate us from from, from the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the first um, installment of the series, uh, we speak with a psychologist, Kurt Gray, who draws uh, our attention to the fact that in our long 
evolutionary history, humans and their ancestors um, are extremely vigilant to anything involving threat and danger. And this makes sense, of course. Our ancestors wouldn't have survived if they didn't have a very keen sense of threat and danger. And they've passed those mental algorithms down to us, if you will. And we have imported them into the political sphere. And so very often, I think, when we see people being very angry and out of control and and hateful in, in the political sphere, we tend to, to assume these people must just be malevolent people. The truth is that very often this anger and this hatred is actually being shaped by underlying uh, an, an underlying feeling of threat, an underlying sense of fear. Um, it's almost if you imagine the metaphor of you know two armies facing off against each other on a battlefield. You know what all the soldiers really want is they want to be able to go home safely to their families. Uh, but each soldier believes that you know the only way that I can get home safely to my family if I is if I make sure the other side doesn't kill me. Uh, so I need to kill the other side before they can kill me. And and of course the other side perceives this as anger and hostility, whereas a lot of this is actually being shaped by by fear and a sense of threat. It, it doesn't solve the problem of political polarization, but it does cast it in a new light. It does take some of the the heat out of the rancor, if you will. And I think very effectively you begin um, that conversation um, with Kurt, is that his name? W with this story of right. a rather intense story of a road rage, road, road rage incident that he was uh, a part of as mm -hmm. a teenager that brings us right into the heat of what it's, I mean, it's actually doing stuff to us physically. As I listen to that right. story, my blood pressure is rising. I have to calm myself down and I wasn't even there for the incident. This inspired the scientist to do the kind of moral psychology work that he wanted to do in the future. Tell us a little bit about that story and how you think it applies to this broader idea of our own divisiveness. Sure. So the story goes back to, to Kurt Gray's childhood. He was um, 16 years old. He had, uh, he had a car which uh, you know, he loved to drive uh, very fast. I believe he had nicknamed the car Fireball, which gives you a sense of uh, his approach to driving as a 16-year-old. And, and one evening, he and, and a group of friends were, were heading to the movie theater, uh, driving too fast, playing the music too loud. Um, and they were late for the movie. And so they were really uh, racing to get to the, to the movie theater. They were driving along a, a highway which had uh, two lanes going in each direction. And um, at one point, uh, there was a turn that, uh, that Kurt had to make that he missed. And he was about to miss the turn. And, a, and the friend sitting in, in the car told him, hey, Kurt, we have to turn left. And so Kurt, without thinking, falls on the steering wheel, pulls the wheel to the left, without realizing that there's a car in his blind spot coming up on his, on his left. Um, both cars slam on the brakes. They come very close to a near-fatal collision. They stand there for a minute in, in, the, in the night. Uh, you know, both are shocked. Both drivers are shocked. And Kurt is about to get out of his car and apologize to the other driver when he sees the other driver jumping out of his car and come barreling toward him saying, I'm going to kill you. Uh, you nearly killed us both. And the other driver is furious. So Kurt takes off, drives away in his car, the other driver gets back in his car and chases Kurt. They have this very dramatic, you know, movie-like uh, chase that runs for several miles through dark, uh, dark alleys. And eventually the other car corners him, at which point one of Kurt's friends, you know, threatens to call the police. And they say, you know, we're going to call the police if you don't stop harassing us. And the other driver says, go ahead, call the police. I'll tell them what you did and surely they will see it from my point of view. 
And at that moment, Kurt realizes, you know, from his point of view, he's just a frightened teenager who's being pursued by this man through dark alleys and, and is fearing for his life. And he thinks the police are going to side with him. The other driver thinks, here are this group of reckless teenagers. They nearly killed me. And if I call the police, surely they will agree with me. And, and in that moment, Kurt realized that both sides, in some ways animated by their own fear, their sense of threat and danger, had acted in ways that in some ways could harm the other person, or certainly it's perceived by the other person as harmful or dangerous or angry behavior. And that in some ways was the, you know, the, 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 the original idea, the, the, the seed, if you will, of what became a lifetime of research where yeah. Kurt makes his argument that fear and threat in some ways often masquerade as anger and hatred in our political sphere. So much has been made of the idea that there are outside forces, maybe even foreign actors through social media, who are planting things in our lives that divide us, you know, that make us angry at each other with the gleeful and strategic plan of, of making Americans fight with themselves, fight mm -hmm. amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. Can a series, can a show like Hidden Brain and a series like Us 2.0, help people pull together and rise above the 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 natural human tendency to feel under a th under threat and then the political forces that benefit from us yeah. behaving like we are under threat yeah i think those are excellent questions and i don't think i'm narcissistic enough to tell you that i believe that a hidden brain series is going to change uh, the american political landscape but it is our hope that in some ways by sharing these ideas, we will at least give some people an opportunity to catch a breath, to take a minute, uh, to reflect for a second. Uh, it is absolutely the case, uh, Laurie, that there are very powerful forces that benefit from aggravation and conf confrontation. Uh, there are media organizations that benefit from people screaming at one another on cable television, for example. And, and those uh, financial incentives are not going to go away tomorrow. But I think it is the case that very, very large numbers of Americans are exhausted by the political screaming matches. They're exhausted by the fact that we always seem to be at each other's throats. I think large numbers of people, in fact, are looking for a way out. One of the episodes that we have in this series uh, looks at the work of a political scientist, Yana Krupnikov, who finds that only a minority of people who are on both the left and the right you know, want to think, breathe, and talk politics all the time. Uh, these are the people who are often the most fervent uh, partisans, but they don't represent the majority of the country. For most of the country, politics is an important issue, but it is not the most important issue in their lives. Uh, they don't want it intruding into every facet of their lives. And I, I suppose to some extent, my series might be aimed more at the at that large majority of people who find themselves constantly bewildered at the political rancor that they see all around them. The first episode of Hidden Brain's Us 2.0 is called What We Have in Common, and that's available now on the Hidden Brain podcast. Online, you can find it at hiddenbrain.org. Listen to Hidden Brain on STPB radios each Saturday at 1 p.m. Central, noon Mountain Time. Well, Valentine's Day is fast approaching. Do you have a plan for your special someone? Or 
to attract a special someone. If you're human, your plans may revolve around flowers, chocolates, or a fancy dinner. If you are a different animal species, your romantic plans likely look a bit different. This Saturday, Woo at the Zoo at the Great Plains Zoo will dive into unique mating habits of other members of the animal kingdom, and we are going to get a preview. Lee Spencer is the conservation director at the Great Plains Zoo in Sioux Falls, and Denise DiPaolo is the zoo's PR and marketing director. They are both here with me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. And Denise, we're calling it something other than the Great Plains Zoo now, aren't we? There's a bigger uh, name that encompasses more of what you do. What would you like us to refer? Well, so we're still the Great Plains Zoo Campus. Um, our yeah. governing body is now the Sioux Falls Zoo and Aquarium Board of Directors. Uh, but right now, so it's Sioux Falls Zoo and Aquarium Board of Directors that is overseeing the Great Plains Zoo and the Butterfly House Campus. So we're one org, two campuses. All right. But a whole lot of fun. And it's Valentine's Day. So this is a great program to get people, you know, maybe people, Denise, who don't often go to the zoo. If you're thinking about just going, you know, when you take your kids, this is a uh, something for the adults. Tell us about the pro tell us about Woo at the zoo. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you think about the zoo, I'm sure a lot of people first think about you know young families, children. Well, animal lovers come in all ages. I can attest to that. <laughs> and so you know sometimes it's great to be able to go ask all your animal questions, learn amazing animal facts, meet some wonderful animals, and not have to move on because your kid wants to move on. Spend all the time <laughs> you want, and maybe have a glass of wine in your hand at the same time. Yeah. If you're kids have have gone to college and no longer are interested in the zoo a they'll probably be, be probably be back and b just go ahead and admit you're going for yourself anyway <laughs> and just come back to the zoo as an adult <laughs> absolutely so this uh, is a wonderful um, wonderful program we did it again we did it last year so this is our second year uh, in a row um, the first hour is appetizers um, we have a we'll have a photo area so you can get a you know fun Valentine's photo with either your date or you know your friends whoever you want to go with um, then we'll have some ambassador animals out during that time as well so I don't know who's gonna be out Lee might have a, a better idea. <laughs> Um, and I guess one thing I do want to share that I think I, I sent wrong is Leah is our director of education as opposed to oh, conservation. That was my mistake. Um, but she is going to be one of our presenters. Yes. All right. Lee, tell us. We don't, you don't have to tip your hand about who the animal ambassadors <laughs> are going to be. However, let's talk a little bit about some of these really fascinating stories about yes. how different animals mate and reproduce. Yes. Where do you want to begin? Well, uh, I think we can talk about a couple of things we talked about last year because we're going to have new stuff stuff this year, but it's along the same lines. Um, everybody thinks of birds as being monogamous and they mate for life, and that's really not true uh, <laughs> for most species. But we also think about, like we think of the typical, right, cardinals. The male is bright red, the female is brown, she sits on the eggs, he sits and sings. That's kind of how birds work. Uh, I love the exceptions, and we're going to talk a lot on Saturday about the exceptions. Uh, one of them is phalaropes, which are a shorebird. Um, and in this species, the female lays her eggs and then leaves it up to the male to sit on the nest. So the coloration is exactly flipped from what you'd expect. The female is bright and showy and lots of colors because the males get to pick which female they want to breed with. And then they are very neutral and dull so that they can hide and protect the eggs. So if you think about mallards or cardinals, the phalaropes are completely flipped of that. Uh, just because their roles are reversed. Yeah, we love hearing that the things that we learned or thought we knew 
have exceptions or is it just because we love to learn new things and as adults we're always learning and we're excited to learn something or is there something there about us pulling it and being able to say but wait that thing that you think is always the same is not I think (laughs) I think it's some of both I think we Mm -hmm. like learning things that are different I think we like going oh my teacher wasn't completely right (laughs) Um, but there's actually studies that show that in informal education facilities you're more likely to learn things that you almost already know so when it's things that tie into stuff we already know that sticks in our brain better it connects easier for us and so I think that's part of it too all right tell us about the dung beetle oh dung beetles so this is one um, I love dung beetles which is sounds really weird, but I always get excited when I see them. Um, With dung beetles, we see uh, an interesting breeding system that is very, again, sort of breaks the mold of what we expect. There's two different kinds of males. There's these big, dominant, strong, huge males that attract the females, and they're the most attractive to them. Um, And then there's these smaller males, and they're a lot closer in size to the female, and they don't generally fight with the big males. But when the male, a big male, gets his female, they'll dung down it they'll dig a hole put dung down in the tunnel and he seals up the tunnel and he guards her so no other males can get in and then the little smaller male will actually dig his own tunnel and then dig a sideways tunnel so he can get into the female and will breed with the female in the tunnel um, and kind of sneak in that way and we see a lot of that in the animal world that um, where we think oh this is clearly male female they're doing their thing there's lots of um Side branches yes. and, and yet, yes. and yet, yes. is there evolutionary <laughs> purpose to all those side branches? Is it just the, the basic understanding that everybody's trying to reproduce and be the one that passes on their genes? Is it that simple or is it well, it's a lot more complicated than that? What yeah. we see in dung beetles specifically yeah. is that those big dominant males tend to put a lot of energy in young to get really big and they don't have as long of a lifespan. And so they may get more females in a shorter window, but over time, the smaller males who tend to live a little longer tend to be a little bit less, they're uh, using less energy for the big fights, can live (laughs) a little longer. And so over time, they're getting as many reproductive opportunities as the big males. So it's sort of competing strategies. And the reason we see both is because it averages out and they both end up working. Ah. There's lessons there for you. (laughs) All right. Sea lions. I'm not going to state what the lesson is. You can infer (laughs) your own lesson. Um, Tell us a little bit about sea lions. Sea lions. Here's here's the boys again. Here's Here's the the boys again. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Sea lions are one of those perfect examples. And we talked about three or four of them last year. Um, And this is the part where everybody's laughing, right? Because they're finding the parallels with their real life. Uh, (laughs) With sea lion males, they get very territorial. They establish a harem. They have a whole group of females that are on their beach, right? They they stake out a section of their beach, and that's their section of their beach. And they impress the females and, and have their harem. But they get so caught up in protecting their section of beach that they will actually trample their own offspring in the process of going to fight with other males over their territory. Uh, and we do see that a lot with species where the males get really territorial. The focus isn't so much on caring for his females and his young as my space, get out. <laughs> we see that in hippos too. Hippos are yeah. a big one that do that as well. Yeah. Denise, what do you think is in these stories for, I mean, it's a fun event and mm-hmm. you're, you know, it's a nice date night or a nice night with your friends or even just by yourself to learn these things. But we are fascinated with the animal kingdom and, and we do see ourselves reflected in it even though we're creating much different societies. Absolutely. And one of the things I really love about the program last year and what I've heard about uh, what they're preparing for this year 
is, um, you know, it's kind of some deep cuts. So it's, yes, the cardinals, but then, you know, the dung beetle. How often are you going to find yourself talking about dung beetles? Um, and lots of other animals that I wouldn't even maybe even know existed if we yep. didn't talk about them in these programs. So there's some kind of cool deep cuts. Mm -hmm. And also everyone loves to have those little nuggets that you can bring to like the dinner party yeah. or, you know, <laughs> out with your friends. And you know, did you know, because guess what? Most of us don't. And so this is a great place to, you know, continue learning in a really fun social environment. Well, this morning we spent a, a significant amount of time deciding whether it was Pecos pupfish or pronounce a different way, and it is Pecos, so it is. <laughs> just to yes, fact check yes. that. So just that alone, you're learning how to pronounce <laughs> words. Okay, tell us about the Pecos pup. So Pupfish. So one of the things that I'm bringing this year that's new is to talk about what we call supernormal stimulus, which is basically bigger is better pushed to an absurd extreme. So the Pecos pupfish is a great example of this. It's a species where the visual cues that the male gives for the female to let her pick the best husband or best mate, basically, um, they're more they're more pronounced in another species called the sheep's head minnow. Didn't matter before because they were in different waterways, but sheep's head minnow has been introduced to the Pecos River, and now all the Pecos pupfish females are like, ooh, baby, to the big males, the <laughs> sheep's head minnow, and we're seeing a huge problem with hybridization. So where the female has a choice of a good-looking Pecos pupfish or the sheep's head minnow who, looks, who has the same cues but bigger, she's choosing... A different species and we see that a lot in freshwater fish we see several situations of that it's also if you've ever heard the anecdote of songbirds where they put a bright colored band on the male and suddenly he gets more girls it's that <laughs> kind of a thing right so it's that my the female's instinct is to go for a certain thing and that when it's yeah. pushed really big then she makes bad decisions all right <laughs> The pearl clutching has begun. <laughs> Let's uh, woo at the zoo. We'll put some information up there um, with this great uh, event for you to come and learn about the unique mating habits of the animal kingdom. Lee and Denise, we thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having thank us. You. And we thank you for listening. <laughs>